Good evening, Newark, and welcome back once again. We are glad to have you here with us for our Wednesday evening broadcast. So, Pastor Steve is getting ready to do the evening Bible study, and we're excited on what he has prepared for us this evening. But before we do that, I want to direct your attention a little bit to something else. As you remember, all throughout the month of May, we did a contest where if you went back and you watched the August 2019 Big Group Learning Series on Understanding Your Bible, you could fill out the kind of affirmation statement, if you will, that was posted on our website saying that you watched all four broadcasts and you would be entered into a drawing for a $25 Amazon gift card. And so now the month of May has closed. This is our first Bible study night since we've reached June. And guess what I have right here in this yellow bowl? I have, and I won't pull them out yet, but I'm just showing you, I've got slips of paper with the names of everybody who filled out that contest card online. And we decided that tonight during our live broadcast, it might be a fun time to go ahead and see who out of those who filled out that card would receive the $25 Amazon gift card. So I first want to say to everyone who did do that and participate, we thank you so much for watching all four of those videos. I hope that you got something out of it and it was a chance for you to draw closer to God and hopefully learn a little something about how to understand your Bible better. But without further ado, before we turn to Stephen tonight with our Bible study topic, I'm going to go ahead and reach in here and pull out one name. We're going to see, <laughs> and the winner is Debbie Pierce. So thank you all for participating, and thank you, Sister Debbie, for participating as well. You have won a $25 Amazon gift card. I'm sure you can find something useful out of that. And now, without further ado, we turn it back to Pastor Stephen, and he's going to bring us tonight's Bible study message. All right, Desi, thank you very much. I was trying to see how I could hand over the host to you, but I'm not seeing that real obvious to me. So I'll let you mute yourself and uh, I'm going to pin my video full and, uh, and then hop on over to where we are. So welcome everybody. We are in the midst of a week of celebrating uh, Pentecost. And uh, this past Sunday was Pentecost Sunday. And we are so excited about the stories that we're sharing with you. And I hope that you're enjoying them. I hope that you're being inspired by them. I hope that you are writing or videoing your own Pentecost story. And if you have not yet received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, as it happens in the book of Acts, speaking in other tongues, I encourage you to seek that, to look for that, to ask God. The scripture tells us that if we will ask, he is faithful to give it to us. It's his good pleasure to give the Spirit to us, his children. Uh, at the same time, as we're celebrating this, you, I am sure, are well aware that our nation, and in fact the world, is in great turmoil. And I'm referring not specifically to COVID-19, though that is having a massive impact upon all of us, but in fact I'm referring to uh, the acts of injustice and the world's response to that injustice. And interestingly enough, I believe there is an intersection between this that we are seeing within our world, the shaking that is occurring, uh, and the day of Pentecost. And so tonight I uh, want to deal in a, in a fairly straightforward manner 
And uh, as has been happening over the last several years, as I bring you large topics, important topics, uh, some of my remarks are, are a little bit more scripted. And so tonight I wanna bring to you something that I've been working on over the last several days uh, that fits within the context of our Pentecost uh, week and our celebration of Pentecost, but it also addresses the issue of race and injustice. And uh, I'm a big proponent that when someone else is able to articulate something well, that you use it, that you don't reinvent the wheel. And so I want to start tonight uh, with uh, and going to lean heavily upon some comments that were made by Daniel Corin, a former student of mine and also a pastoral colleague, uh, in his blog that was posted on May 31st of 2020. So on the day of Pentecost, uh, Pentecost Sunday, uh, he posted this and it's entitled Pentecost, the Cure for Racism. And in that blog, he states the following. And by the way, you can read this blog and others at his uh, blog site, Daniel J. Corin, K-O-R-E-N.com. Again, that's Daniel J. Corin.com. But he states, and I'll let you know whenever I'm reading from him and whenever I'm interspersing scripture and my own thoughts and my own comments, he says, to solve racism, we must know how it began. The same way it started hints at the way it will end. You know that bird that got into the big home improvement store? It will have to leave through the same big door it entered, but now with help. Same with the racial tensions in our world. There was a time before races. The human population on earth was all of one race, ethnicity, and language. They also were of one spirit. They thought the same, shared the same agenda, and unfortunately, they joined forces together against God. And here I'd like to turn your attention to Genesis chapter 11. You may be familiar to the story, but let me read to you just nine verses there that give you the context, the biblical background of what we're talking about here tonight. And by the way, I will tell you that before I read Daniel's blog and uh, several other things I'm going to reference tonight, the Lord had already been dealing with me for the last several weeks about that I needed to talk about Pentecost as the reversal of Babel. And so this, the, the several things that I have read, the things I'm going to share with you tonight are confirmation. I believe the Lord has a message for us. And so I share that with you. But Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 says, At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia, and they settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone, and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. This is a side note, but I believe, uh, I cannot prove this without a shadow of a doubt, but I believe this is a reference, in fact, to the ancient Near East um, constructions called ziggurats, which were actually a part of the idol worship. It was a place that was lifted between heaven and earth, and it was the meeting place between the gods and humanity. Regardless of whether I'm right that it was a ziggurat and therefore idolatrous or something else, verse number five tells us, but the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, 
let's go down and confuse the people with different languages, then they won't be able to understand each other. And I want everybody to hear that phrasing right there. Then they won't be able to understand each other. I want you to think about that in larger terms than just language. They won't be able to understand each other. Now, again, I cannot prove for sure that it's idolatry, but something caused God to say what normally would be a positive, that is unity among humanity, needed to be split up and broken apart. And so verse 8 tells us that in that way the Lord scattered them all over the world, and they stopped building the city. That is why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages, and in this way he scattered them all over the world. Daniel picks up in his thought, Daniel Korn says, yeah, that against God part is what killed it for us. The Lord knew that if humanity united together, nothing could stop them. They did not realize that their shared rebellion would destroy them all. On an ordinary day, unity would be a good thing. But when they conspired against him, God executed a plan to preserve the human race. And as we read in Genesis chapter 11, he changed their languages. If they could not speak the same, they could not unite. It was not just their words that had been similar, but they were of the same spirit and desires and could communicate those with one another. They had shared vision, if I can add here uh, to Daniel's words. They had shared mission. Daniel goes on, he says, they must have been bewildered by the sudden change in their old friends. When you don't understand someone, you tend to become suspicious of them. It appears he changed their languages according to their tribes or main family groups. People spread out and they forged new civilizations among those they could understand. When you are around people who do and say things you are not used to, you feel uncomfortable and tend to assume the worst. For example, they drive a horse and a buggy, and you just cannot understand why anyone would live without air conditioning. And to that, Daniel, I say amen. I do not understand anyone living without air conditioning. Someone else eats foods of which you cannot stomach the smell, let alone a taste. Another person grows his own fruits and vegetables, and you cannot understand why anyone would go to all that work when he could just pick them off a shelf like you. The next natural step, Daniel goes on to say in his blog, in our language contributing to racism is that we begin to label people according to their behaviors. Once we move from saying that person stole from me to saying that person is a thief, we have now given our minds permission to treat them differently. The bully picks on the weird kid, the Nazi kills the Christ killers. The divisions of races may have spared humans from wholesale annihilation, but endlessly we fought with those who were not like us. And Daniel says, before you blame God for this, remember that the division of languages was not the end goal. He had a bigger plan to save us. Unity. Our creator knows the power of us joining forces. He created us that way. However, he preserved the power of unity for us by not letting us all connect on the human level, that is, of language. Instead, he made a way for us to unite in a way that transcends words, corporate slogans, 
political ideologies, or groupthink. He shared his spirit. The amazingly unpredictable way that God did this still captivates my attention, and I'm right with you, Daniel. It is amazing what he did. It's the best plot twist in all of history. When all Earth's inhabitants joined forces at Babel, he changed their languages. And a few thousand years later, when only about a hundred people gathered in unity with him, he put his spirit in them. How did he demonstrate that he had done this? By giving each of them the ability to speak in languages they had never learned before. The sound of babbling broke out among those gathered as once again, God divided the languages. However, this time he did not divide the humans but he brought them together as one. And as you already saw at the beginning of this broadcast, we started with our video. Our answer to the challenges that are going on today is the day of Pentecost. Our answer is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I wanna draw your attention back to it again to draw special emphasis. Acts two verses one through 11, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place, about 120 of them. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared, and it settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Let me insert here, this is the reversal of Babel. It is the exact opposite direction. Both came about because God initiated it. Each had the same purpose, to preserve humanity for salvation. But at the fullness of time, as the Apostle Paul would write, God poured out his spirit to take humanity that had been split apart by language and now draw them back together by a language that they could not speak of their own ability, but rather spoke under the power of the Holy Spirit. The scriptures tell us in verse 5 of chapter 2 of Acts, at that time there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. And now you get a list of all of these different dispersed Jews with different cultures and different backgrounds, many of them not able to speak the language of Hebrew or Aramaic. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and the province of Asia. There's my shout out to Kendall for his rendition. Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism both those who were born Jewish and those who had converted, Cretans and Arabs. And we hear all these people speaking in their own languages about the wonderful things God has done. But the problem is, is as they spoke in these people's languages, it was Galileans who were speaking these languages. Whereas at Babel, they were able to speak in their own languages and God confused them. Now they could not speak in a language that united them, but God gave them language that drew them together as a people. I want to return for a moment here to Daniel's blog. 
He states the heartbreak and harms from racism began to be healed through those humans who now lived lives filled with God's spirit. The very day this happened, people from the 16 major language slash race divisions recognized that God was doing something unprecedented. When they heard the message of Jesus and realized his identity and his purpose to reunite people with God, many plunged into this new life. In fact, Acts 2 tells us 3,000 in a single day. The spirit within some of these believers began to overcome the prejudices their minds had held on to. Soon people from many different cultures were praying together, eating together, and celebrating life together. It was scandalous to popular social expectations. One church in Antioch went off the chain. They had Africans and Greeks and Jews and other cultures leading the church together. People in that city probably visited the believers' meetings just to see if a fight would break out. However, it was there, there in those meetings, that the followers of Christ first picked up the label of Christian. Many of you will remember that on Sunday, October 6th of 2019, I preached a sermon entitled, Which Church? Jerusalem or Antioch? I remind you of the seven main points of that sermon, which I encourage you to go back and listen to or watch on New York UPC info, you can go to our media archive and there you can see it. Point number one, are we controlling people or sending people? These are the distinctions between Jerusalem and Antioch. Number two, are we taking money or sending money? Number three, do we send new members away afraid of them or do we embrace new members believing in what they will become and what they will contribute? Do we demand, number four, do we demand our culture or do we subordinate our culture to the scriptures? Number five, are we defeated by persecution or do we grow by persecution? And here I'd like to perhaps adjust this just slightly. Are we defeated by trials or do we grow by trials? Are we defeated by COVID-19 or do we grow by COVID-19? Are we defeated by unrest in our nation or do we grow by unrest in our nation? Number six, do we oppose the leading of the spirit or do we follow the leading of the spirit? And finally, number seven, do we guard the gospel or do we share the gospel? Again, I reiterate, go back and watch the sermon. I can't re-preach all of that, but I concluded drawing attention to James and Barnabas. These two churches can be best represented by James and Barnabas. Each contributed, but each also failed. James gave us a great letter, but it was a very ethnically defined letter. We can still learn from his letter. But James ultimately seems to have failed to recognize God's mission to the Gentiles. He tried to make Gentiles Jews instead of laying down his Jewishness as they laid down their paganism, and they all became Christians. Barnabas failed by abandoning his co-worker Paul because of cultural pressure. We all feel these cultural pressures, church. But Barnabas also contributed the Apostle Paul to the world by bringing him to Antioch, a church that tried to find a way to coexist all different nations and languages and ethnicities with a mission bigger than any one group of people. Unity that comes from God. Jerusalem rejected Paul, but Antioch embraced Paul. And so even though Barnabas ultimately abandoned Paul, we see from the book of Acts that if it were not for Barnabas, there would be no Paul. And if it were not for Antioch, there would be no Paul. 
and long time Christian historians have said, no Paul, no church. Now, I'm not taking away from Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ called Paul to take his gospel to the Gentiles. He called Paul to break down racial barriers, or as Paul would put it, to tear down the wall of partition between us. Let me turn for a moment back to Daniel. He says, I worry that some today who want to be considered Christian would not attend a church with multiracial leadership. They might think, I don't have a problem with fill in the blank. In this blog, he said, black people fill in the blank. Maybe it's brown people. Maybe it's not just black or brown. Maybe it's, I don't have a problem with women. But I wouldn't want one to be my pastor. And here Daniel throws a major shot across all of our bows. You can't claim to be filled with the Spirit and still hate other humans. I'm going to let that resonate for just a moment. I know tonight's a little heavy. I know tonight's a little serious. But we're in some serious times, folks. You can't claim to be filled with the Spirit and still hate other humans. And Amen. don't tell me that your prejudice and your bias is not hatred. Maybe you don't do hateful things, but if you think them, it's the same as if you did them. Now, Daniel says, the Spirit doesn't instantly cure your old prejudices either, and I agree with that. He works in us until we get it right. A man named Peter, the spokesperson on the day of the Lord, the day the Lord poured out his Spirit, had some deep prejudice. The Spirit took him into the same vision three times until he got the idea that he should not reject people whom God accepted. You imagine walking in or visiting someone's house where people left food on the floor, walked over their dirty clothes, and had flies everywhere. You would probably not want to eat anything they offered you. And by the way, I've been to places where there were things that I was not comfortable with in hygienics, and it took some stomach to eat what was offered to me in hospitality. That's how strongly Peter, people of Peter's race felt about entering and eating in the home of anyone of a different culture slash religion. But once the spirit changed his heart, old Peter went into the house. Oops, sorry, Daniel, let me give you true credit here. Old Pete went into the home the Lord sent him to, and he stayed there a while, eating what they provided. Later, another preacher had to set Peter straight on this issue again, because he had begun to stay away from meals where believers of another race were present. And this human activity, this cultural activity, was hurting the new Christians and creating a divide in the church. We cannot assume we can solve racism with politics, protests, or value signaling. And I say amen to that, Daniel. Ladies and gentlemen, I am not speaking against our protests. I'm not speaking against the politicians and the politics that are involved. I'm not speaking against any stand you take on Facebook, but I stand with my colleague we will not solve racism with any of those things. They are good, but they are not sufficient. Daniel goes on to say, racism resulted after God's fail-safe measures at Babel. It will only be healed as people with spirit-saturated lives learn to humble themselves, to learn and listen, and then let the spirit in them make them one with people of widely varying backgrounds. The celebration of Pentecost 
is God's gift to not just save sinful humanity, but to restore us from the division of races and cultures. He is still filling empty vessels with his spirit today. There is no better way to live. And I say to Daniel, amen. And by the way, to all of you, I let Daniel know I was going to use his blog. I've given him full attribution, and I thank him for the permission to be able to use this. He put it so well that I did not want to recreate it. I want to close with two things. As Professor Stanley Haueros of Duke Divinity School put it in his contribution, the church as God's new language to the edited work, Scriptural Authority and Narrative Interpretation. Professor Haueros said, at Pentecost, God created a new language, but it was a language that is more than words. It is instead a community whose memory of its savior creates the miracles of being a people whose very differences contribute to their unity. I want you to hear that again. This is a community who, as they remember their savior, that memory creates the miracle that our differences contribute to our unity. Professor Haueros went on to say, we call this new creation church. So this week in particular, but for us Pentecostals, every single day, we celebrate Pentecost. We celebrate our own personal Pentecost. And we invite you to join us in the wonder of Pentecost. You want your own. And so, Desi, as I'm coming right up on 30 minutes here, I want to close with a reading from Colossians chapter 3. And you may recognize this passage because there's a verse of it that we ended our video on Acts 2 and our reading and our statement. We ended with a verse that comes from this passage. I want to read to you the longer section. And it goes like this. This is from the message. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, it's with Christ in God. He is your life. When Christ, your real life, remember, shows up again on this earth, you'll show up too. The real you, the glorious you. Meanwhile, be content with obscurity, just like Christ. And that means killing off everything connected with that way of life. Sexual promiscuity, impurity, lust, doing whatever you feel like, whenever you feel like it, and grabbing whatever attracts your fancy. That's a life shaped by things and feelings instead of by God. It's because of this kind of thing that God is about to explode in anger. It wasn't long ago that you were doing all that stuff and not knowing any better, but now, now you know better. So make sure it's all gone for good. Get rid of bad temper and irritability, meanness, profanity, and dirty talk. Don't lie to one another. You're done with that old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you've stripped off and put in the fire. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item of your new way of life is custom made by the creator with his label on it. 
All the old fashions are now obsolete. Words like Jewish and non-Jewish, religious and irreligious, insider and outsider, uncivilized and uncouth, slave and free mean nothing anymore. From now on, everyone is defined by Christ. Everyone is included in Christ. So, chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Let the peace of Christ keep you in tune with each other, in step with each other. None of this going off and doing your own thing. And cultivate thankfulness. Let the word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. Instruct and direct one another using good common sense. And sing, sing your hearts out to the God that you serve. Let every detail in your lives, words, actions, whatever, be done in the name of the master, Jesus, thanking God the Father every step of the way. And Desi, the only way we're ever going to be able to do that is through the power of the Spirit. What was poured out on the day of Pentecost is what causes us to have the answer to all that is ripping our world apart today. So Newark, be brave, be courageous, because the troubles that we see in front of us are troubles that God is in control of. Not that he's producing them, but he's in control of them. And we are his light. We are his messengers. We are his witnesses. And just as God has expunged from us all of the old life and is continuing to remove it from us, that bears witness to a world that needs hope. And that hope can very easily be encapsulated in the day of Pentecost when God reversed Babel and that which split us apart so we didn't understand one another. Now we are progressively step-by-step step, returning to an understanding of each other by God's grace and by the power of his spirit. All right, not too bad. I think you turned it over to me two minutes or three minutes after. It's 7.33. Why don't you come back on the screen with me, Desi? Show off. <laughs> no, you did excellent. And we're so glad to have you share that with us. And I'm glad to hear your thoughts on this. And I love the idea of viewing the story in Acts chapter 2 and that day of Pentecost as a reversal of what happened in Genesis with the Tower of Babel. That's a great way to look at it. Often we see in scripture how God takes different elements and, and flips them on their head or Absolutely. a fancier word. He recontextualizes items yes. later in scripture for a different purpose. So for all of you who are watching us live, now is the time to submit your questions. If you have not done so, please, please get on it now and start bringing in the questions. We have a couple questions that have been submitted so far. So I will pass the first one along to Pastor Stephen. Um, Scott Lucas shared this question, and he says in his comments that it's actually a repeat of a question someone asked him, 
and he would love to get your input on it. And he asked, why is it so important for us to share our story or our testimony of Pentecost? All week we've been sharing stories, the pastoral Absolutely. team of my Pentecost. So why do we do this, Stephen? Well, first, I'm going to give you a scriptural uh, and therefore what I would call a principle-based answer. And second, I'm going to give you a practical or an application-based answer. So the principle-based is because Jesus told us to. He said, I'm going to come, I'm going to fill you with my spirit, and because of the power of the spirit, you then are going to be able to be my witnesses. And when you take that word, and I don't want to take too long because I want to give plenty of time for other questions, but when you take that word, it's a court language. It's about a witness. You're not the judge, you're not the jury, you're not the prosecutor, you're not the defense attorney. You are someone who simply comes and tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God, to use American language. Or, as the apostles would say it in Acts, we can only tell you what we've seen and what we've heard. And so the reason you tell your story is, is, first of all, because that's what a witness does. A witness doesn't tell somebody else's story. That's called hearsay. It's inadmissible in the court of law. You can only tell what you have seen and what you have heard. Now, the practical aspect of this, which I think Jesus understood. And, and that, if I can interject real quick, also, please notice as we share our testimony, and sometimes we get nervous about it, a witness does not decide the outcome of the case. That's correct. Not their responsibility. That's right. And I think that's sometimes where we have trouble, Desi, as you rightly point out, is that we're trying to control it. So then we become either the prosecutor or the defense attorney or even the jury or the judge. That's not our role. That's not our purpose. You simply tell and then you leave. You wait on the judge. You wait on the court proceedings. And when you're done, you're dismissed. Witness may leave the stand. I mean, it's a dismissal. You walk out. You have no control of the outcome. The practical reason is, is I believe, particularly in our day and age, but I think it's always been true. Somebody has a hard time rejecting another person's story. We can all reject one another's facts. We can go and reject one another's arguments. But when someone tells their personal story, what do you say to that? How do you argue with their story? And particularly in our day and age, Brother Scott, I believe that is the most powerful element. I think Jesus understood this. I think it's always been powerful. But in this day and age, people are done with production. They are done with arguments. They are done. They've been lied to. Younger generation than me and on down, they are done with all of this. They want to know something authentic. They want to know something real. In Newark, I know sometimes I push the envelope of that real card, okay? I sometimes go places and some of you are like, oh my goodness, Pastor, what are you doing? But the reality is, is the reason I do it is number one, it's a reflection of my personality. But number two is that when you are real, nobody can argue with that. It is the most potent witness that you have. How can somebody tell you you didn't feel what you felt? How does somebody look at Meg and tell her that she didn't have the feelings that she felt and, and the fear that she couldn't be accepted, and yet then God began to touch her and, and filled her with the Holy Ghost? How does somebody look at Leela and, and say, no, you didn't really pray at that altar, and, and then say, God, I'm never going back, and yet then you end up back? How can somebody argue with the story? They can't. And that's the potency of our witness. Thank you for sharing that, and it's a good reminder to us. When we put it in that perspective, witnessing the idea of just sharing the story of what God has done for me, all of a sudden doesn't get too complicated, doesn't get too scary. Right. I think many of us, I know for myself, especially the way I was raised in the church culture I was raised in, we conflate witnessing with some other things. And we feel that witnessing means that we need to 
bear out the entire Bible for somebody and help bring them to a point of decision as we are speaking to them. And, and really, the biblical example is, no, be ready to give an account of what God has done for you. And the old quote, Desi, that you know of is, is, is uh, you know, bear witness and when necessary, use words. <laughs> so your most powerful witness is when people watch your story on display, not just what you say. And there may be an occasion where they ask you of the hope that is in you, and then you be ready to give them an answer. But your witness actually starts long before you ever open your mouth. So somebody watches you and your life jives, your life bears witness. And that's what the passage I read from Colossians speaks to. Get rid of the old life. And so step by step, we need to act different with one another, just straight up. And as we act different, the world can see something's going on here. For you quote nerds, it is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It's it's unverifiable if he actually said it. But right. in, tr in English, translated in English, it says, always preach the gospel. And when necessary, use words. Next question coming from Jasmine. And awesome. I one of our one of our teenagers. Scroll back through the chat. Sorry about that. She asked, why did God let them build the tower if he knew that it was not going to reach heaven? So why even let them start? Okay, so first of all. Tower of Babel is shrouded in some mystery. You'll notice, Jasmine, that I was very careful to tell you that I think, that's one of my code words, which means pastor is using an opinion, okay? It's an informed opinion, but it's still an opinion. I cannot prove it. I think that this was about idolatry. So the first thing I want you to understand is regardless of whether I'm right about that or it's something else, it was never God's intention for them to reach the heavens. This was their idea, okay? That's the first thing. Something about it displeased God. Okay, that much is very clear by the action that he took. But what I think you are trying to get at is actually a very powerful question, which is, if God knows something bad is going to happen, why does he allow it? And if I'm anywhere in the ballpark with that rephrasing of your question, you young lady have stuck your finger on a massive topic that biblical scholars and philosophers and humans through history have been trying to deal with, which is this question of how does a good God allow evil to occur? And the very unsatisfying answer, so I'm going to acknowledge right now, this is an unsatisfying answer, but this is all I've got for you, Jasmine. The unsatisfying answer is two words, free will. And here's what it is. You probably know it, but let me put it to you succinctly. When God made us, he made us in his image and after his likeness. From everything we can tell from the scriptures, a piece of that is that we have the ability not only to say yes to God, but to say no to God. And it's in that ability to say no to God that evil comes. If he takes away the option of them building a tower that's in my world, I think it's idolatrous or some other way offensive to God. If he takes away the ability for Adam and Eve to disobey and take of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, then he's taken away free will. And while he would have a creation, it would not be a creation made in his image and after his likeness. It would be something like the giraffes or the lions or the hippos or the, or the whales or the porpoises or any number of other things or the trees or the grass. They all live, 
but they don't have free will. They don't have choice. We were made with choice and with choice comes the ability for us to do evil. So God allows it out of his love for making us in his image. And then what he does is he works in that broken world to try to call us back to a good choice. And that's what the day of Pentecost is about. It was about choosing to obey God and go back and wait at Jerusalem. It was about a group of people being willing to pray. It was about a group of people being willing to receive the spirit that then would transform them into a new life. And so it comes down to bottom line is that free will. To add just one comment onto that. And I'm not expecting an answer, but something for all of you listening to think about. Is it love if we don't have a choice? If, if God designed us so we were always obedient and we always expressed love to him, is it really love? So I, I, I feel for it to be authentic and genuine, you also have to include the risk of rejection. Hence the free will. My children are very clear about that. I will be respectful of them and say, would you mind doing X, Y, or Z? And they will very quickly look at me and say, dad, that's not even a legitimate question because we really don't have the option to say no. <laughs> and of course, each step of the way towards full maturity and therefore full relationship with my children leads to them being able to say no. And it's a little consternating at times. I have two older sons that are now adults, and I'm not talking about things of the word of God or house rules, but there's some things where they just look and they go, no, dad, I'm not doing that. And I'm like, I don't like this. I liked being able to order you, but it's a different type of relationship when you can say no. And we pale in comparison to what God deals with as Absolutely. he deals with all of us. Absolutely. Yep. Next question from Cassandra. She asks, do you think that it was always God's intention for human beings to speak different languages and to have different cultural backgrounds? It's a very interesting question, Cassandra. I would expect none less from my baby girl. So first of all, I think we have to distinguish between those things that split us apart and those things which are different from one another, but are part of God's diversity. Not all the animals were created the same. The first man and the first woman were not created the same. Sameness was never God's intent. And by the way, racism is rooted in the desire of sameness. I'll leave that hang for everybody to think about, but true racism resides in the desire for everyone to be the same. Hitler, one of the great icons of racism, talks about a superior race, and he wanted everybody to be the same. He had it down to color of hair and color of eyes and stature and all kinds of goofiness, okay? That was never God's agenda. However, with that diversity, when the languages become confused, when understanding of one another becomes broken, now we are faced with diversity that does not lead to richness, but leads to anger and war and fighting. It debases us as a human race. It debases our world. So God's intent was for us to be unique and different. That's why I've joked with you and, and your sister Candace, and I've joked with the church. Some of you ladies who don't like your body type are going to be really frustrated when you get to heaven 
because you're going to think heaven's going to put you back to perfect, right? No, God likes all the tall, skinny ones. He also likes all the short ones that have a little bit more weight on them. He likes the little petite ones, and he likes the ones that are big and raw bone. He likes all of us men that have dark hair and grow a beard in 30 seconds, and he likes us that can barely get a beard going. He likes diversity. But what he doesn't intend and never did intend is for that diversity to lead to anger, to distrust, to hatred, to basically the absence of love. And so it's easy to mix those two things up and think if we can just get everybody the same, then everything's going to be okay. Sameness is not the key. Love is the key. Excellent response. I would expect nothing less from you. Thank you for that. Next question coming from Melody. How do we convey love and acceptance to people, even when culture or our background differences make it very hard for us to communicate? Absolutely. It's a good question, Melody. Thank you for asking that. Okay. This is, this is everybody buckle up. Are you ready? Because I literally can give you a really short answer. Now, I'm not going to oh stick boy. with just the short answer. Here I'm, it I'm, comes. I'm, I'm really not, but I can give you a short answer. Brace short yourself. Answer, yep, this is it. I don't do this very often, so everybody mark it down. It's a historic day. The Holy Spirit. That is the only way. Now, let me embellish a little bit. The work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, as Daniel Korn points to in the parts that I read to you, changes not just how we speak, but it changes intangible elements, things that are communication, but they're not just about language. And I don't, Melody, know how to explain this, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, no matter who a person is and no matter what language they speak, if I will let the Spirit operate through me and I will allow it to put down my prejudices and my biases and my fears and my fear of the unknown, I can convey many times, not with words, love. And it's not by my ability, it's not by power, it is by the Spirit of God. And I'll, I'll uh, speak of our friend, Dr. Joey Payton, he makes the comment all the time. He's like, Steve, how you should not be a pastor. All you do is you go around and you insult people constantly. You stand at the pulpit and you say things. And if you don't know me, and if you're not in relationship with me, it from a distance could look like I'm insulting, but part of it is my personality. Part of it is who I am as Steve, but part of it is, is in that relationship, I have somehow learned, and I'm not perfect at it. So Melody, please understand, I'm not claiming to be perfect, but I am in the process of growing day by day that what is in my heart can somehow be conveyed by more than just words. So that even though I'm kind of rough and tumble and sometimes I'm a little harsh and sometimes I'm a little eccentric, well, a lot eccentric, okay, but I'm out there, and I'm all these crazy places. The people within the church most days know I deeply love them, and that's not by my words. It's by the Spirit of God working in us, and that's the key. We were split apart by God because we were coming together to do something destructive, whatever that happened to be. We will be reunited as one people standing before that throne, all the nations, all the ethnicities, all the tongues, all the peoples 
by the power of the Spirit. That's why Pentecost is so central. That's why I don't want to be rude to anybody, but you want the Holy Spirit. If you haven't experienced it, you want it, because this is an amazing, transforming power within the lives of human beings. Desi, you're still muted. If you were trying to tell me something or tell them something. I apologize. I hit the wrong button. Next question comes from Ruth. And she at Ruth Lanciano. And she asks, how do you respond to fellow Christians who believe that you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? And how do you respond to those that feel? The Sneeze, spirit right? of, Sorry about the that. The spirit of Bruce Howell is upon you. Oh, um, more like allergies. So the first question was, how do you respond to those who believe that you receive the Holy Spirit when you first become a Christian and believe? And how do you respond to those who feel that speaking in tongues, especially as what's referenced in Acts chapter 2, was only so that God's message could be shared to outsiders? Absolutely. Good questions, Ruth, obviously. Um, I would expect nothing less than good questions from you. So the second question, let me take the second question first. So the second question is, brace yourself, I've got another short answer for you. God can walk and chew gum at the same time. He's able to do two things at once. So the idea that because he used the initial filling of the first members of the church, those 120, about 120 believers, the fact that the language he gave them to speak was a language understood by the dispersed Jews does not take away from the fact that to the Galileans, they had no foggy idea what they were saying, and they spoke what they spoke under the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we understand that the gift of the Holy Spirit is first and foremost about the life transformation of us as believers and as witnesses, then we understand that God has to have some definitive, clear line in the sand way of letting us know that there's been something that's happened. I promise you that baby when it is expelled, whether taken out through C-section or expelled vaginally out of that mother's body, when that baby hits that cold air, there is a clear line of demarcation. That baby knows that life has changed and will never be the same. <laughs> they don't like it. They're not happy about it. They're upset about it, okay, because it's very clear. And so in the same way in our spiritual birth, the Infilling of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues is the clear line of demarcation, okay? And we as Pentecostals have very much gotten very fixated on the speaking in tongues piece and missed the point. It's about the birth. It's not about the tongues. But the tongues is the clear line of demarcation. God used, it seems, according to Acts chapter 2, that first one, that the languages they spoke under the power of the Spirit were understandable. And we have other anecdotal stories down through history of this continuing to be part of God's arsenal. But it's not the only thing that he's about. His first order is to fill us with his spirit so that we have power to be a witness. Now, your first question, what do you say to someone who says, I receive the Holy Spirit when I believe? If they're coming to church, if they have access to the gospel, Ruth, believe it or not, I typically smile at them and say, awesome, keep loving Jesus. And I don't say anything else, because here's the deal. 
you can't avoid being born again if you are in a womb. A baby will not stay in that womb for 18 years. It's just not going to happen. That mother's body, that baby's body is going to force the issue. So I'll tell you a story of a dear lady that passed away a little while ago. Her name was Dottie Maley. This is before Desi, you and Rachel even came. Many of you don't even remember Dottie, but some of you do. Dottie came and she was so excited when she first came to us because she had never been to a Presbyterian church, never been to a Presbyterian church. Now, if any of you are listening tonight and you're Presbyterian, I mean, no offense. Okay. But we did not tell her that she had not come to a Presbyterian church. Dottie had clearly gotten Presbyterian and Pentecostal mixed up and we just did not tell her. Now, if we were unchristian, you pray for us. But I didn't feel the need to tell her that she was actually not at a Presbyterian church. She was at a Pentecostal church. And so in the midst of her coming to church, I asked Dottie one day, have you received the Holy Ghost? And she said, oh, yes, Brother Steve. And she was a sweet lady. She had survived polio. And uh, she, was a, she was a beautiful lady. And uh, she would come and I would go and visit with her. And, and she was a great lady, had a lot of health issues. And, uh, and, and, but we loved her. And, and so she came. And so she, I, when I asked her if she had the Holy Ghost, she said, oh, yes. Well, I knew for a fact. Okay, I'm not even guessing, folks. Forgive me for sounding arrogant, but I'm not even guessing. If you don't know the difference between a Presbyterian and a Pentecostal church, you don't have a clue whether you got the Holy Ghost or not. So I knew she hadn't had the Holy Ghost, at least not with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. So I smiled and I said, all right, Dottie, that's great. And I left her alone. We went on having church week after week. Well, a few months later, Dottie's sitting up on the front pew and I looked down and she's just worshiping God, loving God, enjoying her Presbyterian church. I think by this point she knew it was Pentecostal. And I looked down. And it sure looked to me like something was happening. I went down. Sure enough, I could hear her speaking in another, in another language. She didn't know it. When it finished, I looked at Dottie and I said, have you ever experienced that before? She goes, oh, no, Brother Steve, I've never experienced that before. That was wonderful. And I said, now that, Dottie, is what receiving the Holy Ghost is. And I went about my way. I didn't need to get into a doctrinal battle with her. Because those who desire the Spirit, those who seek after God, they're going to be born again. It's what happens because no one comes to the Father unless being drawn by the Spirit of God. You're born from above. So, Ruth, I try to duck those arguments. I honestly don't go after them. If the person seeking God, they're going to get the Spirit. If they're not, you can fight with them all day long. They're going to do what they're going to do. So, I don't fight. It's not going to solve anything by continuing. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And the second half of the question? Oh, I answered it first. You don't believe me? Okay. All right. Read the second half again to me. What's the second half? If you say you did, I, I wouldn't want to argue with you on a live stream. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? No, wouldn't it be a lot of fun? See, <laughs> Desi's too nice, folks. How do you... Sometimes. How do you respond to those who feel that speaking in tongues in Acts 2 was only meant to share God's message to outsiders on the day of Pentecost? Yeah, yeah and I talked about I talked about how that the language, he did two things at once. You know, he can walk and chew gum. So he did two purposes, but it's not the only thing he was doing there. And the other, the one thing I would add, Desi, uh, in, in bringing it up, is that there are other examples in which God has people speaking in tongues as they receive the Holy Spirit. And it's not the purpose of speaking to others. So that's why I started with the answer, God can walk and chew gum at the same time. 
if we only look at the experience as taken from Acts chapter 2, you can come to what I would consider some false conclusions. However, right. if you look across the expansive narrative of all of Acts and you look at what happened in Acts 2 and Acts 8, and Acts 10, and Acts 19, and all these different, Paul's own excursion, um, Absolutely. experience as he describes it. When you look across these five different narratives that I just named, you get a different picture than if you only look at what we see in Acts chapter Even 2. Even the classic phrase, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, the first time that that is heard by the Apostle Paul, who writes it in Romans, is when Ananias comes to him and says, to arise and be baptized, and to call on the name of the Lord, okay? That belief and that calling on the name of the Lord, you see it with the jailer, the Philippian jailer as well. What does the Philippian jailer do after he believes? He's baptized. So it always leads to action. Belief always leads to actions on our part. Part of that action is baptism in Jesus' name, but the other part of that action is also the submission of ourselves to God as he fills us with the Spirit, whether in that moment or whether at a later point. And that's the great thing. People, according to the book of Acts and according to experience, People receive the Holy Ghost and then get baptized. People get baptized and then receive the Holy Ghost. Some people get the Holy Ghost as they're in the water and coming up out of the waters of baptism. Some people, it takes months or even years later for God to fill them with the Holy Ghost. And it's all got to do with our context, our personal relationship with God, the struggles that we have, all of these unique personal relationship things. Amen. And we are now coming up to the top of the hour. It is 8 p.m. right now. I'll throw one final question. It is actually not something for us to answer, but a consideration. Sister Bernice asked if we would ever consider hosting a multicultural panel to discuss some of these things further, especially as we deal with issues of race. So thank you for the suggestion, Sister Bernice. Absolutely. Thanks for suggesting it. Talk in the future as a pastoral team about. For all of you who are joining our broadcast tonight, we thank you once again for being with us on our live stream as Pastor Stephen tonight worked through multiple different scriptures, primarily connecting the Acts chapter 2 experience as a reversal of what happened with the Tower of Babel in Genesis and how also referencing Daniel Coren's blog and the fact that the only cure for racism is the power of the Holy Spirit. If you've been following along with us during this broadcast, you'll notice that we posted several links. You can scroll back through the chat feature. One is a link to Daniel Coren's blog. And so if he happens to hear this later, thank you once again, Daniel, for allowing us to use some of your material. And the second link that we posted earlier was specifically to the message that Pastor Stephen preached last October in October of 2019 called Which Church? Antioch or Jerusalem. If you look through the chat comments, you will see we posted a link directly to where you can find that on our church website, newarkupc.info. If you have not heard that message before, we highly encourage you to listen to it. And when you go visit our church website at newarkupc.info, you'll notice that since yesterday, there have been some changes. As we've been working through this COVID-19 situation, our digital campus broadcasts have continued to expand. And so what originally started as a internal church website with a few cards you could click on with some information keeps growing and growing and growing and growing, which is wonderful, except now we've got 20 different categories. So if you're on a mobile phone, you may find that you've got to swipe left or swipe up 20 different times just to get to the card you're looking for. So to make it a little more user-friendly, we've gone through, we've reorganized it. Hey, thank you for pulling it up. And you'll notice we've got six main cards now. We've got the I'm new card, the digital campus card, 
a small groups card, a general information card, a contact us card, and a media card. That last card, the media card, has links to all of our sermons, both in audio and also audio video. And if you hover over, Stephen, if you'll hover over Digital Campus, as you hover over the different cards, it'll give you more information. And if you'll go ahead and click on that, Stephen, inside each of these main cards, you'll see several subcards. So if you're looking for a particular card and you can't find it, it's still there. We didn't get rid of anything. We just tried to reorganize our church website to make it a little user friendly, make it a little easier to navigate and find. So if you'll hover over those main cards, you'll find information about all of those subcards. And we encourage you to come check it out. If you haven't joined a small group, now's a great time to go look at that and pick up a small group, especially as we continue in this online format. We thank you all for joining us once again. God bless you all. Have a great night. We'll see you again tomorrow night at 7 p.m. for our broadcast and Friday night at 7 p.m. for another live session with our Friday with Friends. Thanks, Newark, and have a great evening.